again, my name is Roosevelt. I'm an alcoholic. Um, my sobriety date is February 22nd of 2013. Um, I have a, my home group is the Bolden group here. Um, and I also go to meetings at Allendale, the noon meeting. Um, I have a sponsor and I sponsor other guys in the program. Um, I have a higher power, uh, working in my life, which I choose to call God. Um, and, uh, so when I'm asked to tell my story, I usually try and think of like where I'm at in my recovery. Right. And, um, not too long ago, I had this recurring inventory that kept coming up and, um, and I went to my new sponsor here and I was like, Hey, this is going on. And, and, you know, and he, and he was, and he said to me, he's like, are you coming to me because you are looking for like some sort of relief or are you coming to me because you're actually willing to take some action to change? And I've never really had a sponsor that like challenged me like that, you know, on a call. And I was like, what, wait, you're supposed to help me. Like, I, you know, that's not what I asked. And, but it really planted a seed and really um, made me think hard about like, what am I doing? Right. Am I just looking for relief? Am I just looking for this like temporary uh, 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 lessening of my pain? Or am I actually willing to take some action to change my life, to change how I show up, to change how I do things. And so that sort of will, you know, bleed into my story um, because that's really where I'm at today. Um, uh, To start, you know, at the beginning, um, my parents are from South America. They're from Ecuador and they come from a very super Catholic old book, like uh, very religious beliefs and, um, you know, they migrated to the United States and, um, and I don't know, I think my parents, like in, in the village where they grew up, like being gay is an abomination, right? It's in like, you might as well just, you know, it's, it's categorized with people who are homeless and prostitutes and gays and that's, they're just lumped into this one part of the city, which they call, actually call the abominations. And, um, so, you know, my mom gives birth to this like glitter ball, right? And I don't think, and, and unbeknownst to them, right? They don't know. And, but as I started growing up, I definitely started showing signs, right? That I was a little light in the loafers. I was a little too happy around dolls. And my parents freaked out. Like they did not know how to process that. Um, and, um, and so I think, you know, my mom had this whole like, you know, hands-off policy where it was like, don't coddle the queer, right? And, and excuse my words, but this is the words that I grew up with, right? And, and my dad was really abusive. Like, my, my dad's pet names for me were like faggot, queer, and if I didn't understand it in English, he would say it in Spanish, maricon, so that I knew, regardless of whether I was English or Spanish, that I was gay and that I was different and that something was wrong with me, right? And my dad's I can always hear my dad's voice in my head saying, why can't you be normal? Why can't you be normal? And as a kid, you know, here I'm like four, you know, three, four, five years old. Um, I really took that to be real. Like I'm not normal, right? And so, uh, you know, simultaneously um, in my early adolescence, um, I was sexually abused probably starting at the age of like five till about 11 years old by some older guys in the family and whatnot. And I think the combination of both of those things um, really had me in this like perpetual state of like emotional pain. 
I just remember always wanting something different. I didn't like who I was. I didn't like my life. I didn't like my parents. I didn't like any of it. And so um, I had three wishes as a kid, right? Because like this was my, this is the way I saw God, right? Like he's supposed to grant me wishes. And it was, I wanted to be tall. I wanted to be straight and I wanted to have a happy family. None of which came through. You know, I'm still, I'm, I'm still true, right? I'm still short. I'm still gay. And my parents got divorced when I was like about three years old, right? So um, I've grown up, I grew up with this God-sized hole and this um, constant state of seeking to change how I feel. Um, and seeking relief really was um, a big, big part of, of, of my whole life. Um, now, those things that happened to me as a kid, they don't define my alcoholism, right? But they will define, like, my spiritual malady, my, like, constant seeking, this, the way I obsess about things, um, this constant state of, like, malcontentedness, right? I'm never happy. And, um, and so, you know, life goes on. I continue to grow up. And in, so it's, I'm not really, I'm not surprised that, you know, in seventh grade, I found alcohol, um, I was camping with some of my older cousins who it was his job to uh, butch me up, make me, you know, more straight. And um, so I was introduced to alcohol and, um, you know, like I, I immediately made the connection that I had arrived because when I drank, I kn- it no longer mattered. Everything else didn't matter. I automatically fit in and everybody was like, yeah, you know, just pour more alcohol into them. And, you know, I could spin around and, and, and just be like the life of the party. And that was really the persona that I rallied around, right? I can, I can rally behind this, right? And, um, and so I became the party guy. Like, I was the one that was always putting parties together, getting people together, having fun, the class clown, the party clown. And it was all fun and games in the beginning, right? Um, it all starts off as a good time. And, um, and then little by little, you know, alcohol started to dictate all of my life's choices. And um, I heard a speaker uh, once say that um, the difference between an alcoholic and a non-alcoholic is that the non-alcoholic will change his behaviors to meet his goals. So if they want to go to college, whatever, whatever, they'll change whatever behaviors they're doing to make sure that they get to that goal. But for me as an alcoholic, I change my goals to meet my behavior. And so I remember, like I set out to be an architect. As a little kid, I was drawing and I just wanted to be an architect. And the more, as alcohol took over my life over the years, the less and less I had any of those aspirations anymore. I mean, I dropped out of college um, and I honestly thought that in my 20s um, that I thought I could make a lucrative career out of just slinging drinks, you know, just uh, at a gay bar, in a jockstrap, in boots. And that was going to be like that. I was going to be enough for me. Right. I was having a good time. I had all the drugs of choice were there. Right. I have like sex, alcohol, drugs. And I didn't want anything else. I thought that was going to be enough for me. Right. And I'm super codependent. So I'm looking for someone to save me. Right. I'm looking for someone who's going to like carry me. Right. Because I honestly don't believe I can do it for myself. Um, So. I continue to like adjust my reality to the delusion of my alcoholism. My alcoholic life becomes the only life I know. Um, and uh, also growing up, I was super, my life, I guess I, I was characterized by like 
anger and fear. Like those are the two feelings that I remember mostly. You know, I was always afraid that I wasn't going to be liked or that I wasn't, um, that I was going to lose something. Um, and I was super angry. Like I hated my dad. I can't tell you how much I hated my dad. And that anger bled into every part of my life. Whenever anybody said anything to me, I was, I always responded angrily. And I remember even growing up, like my mom started noticing my drinking and she would say like, Oh, stop drinking. You know, you're turning into an alcoholic, just like your father. And I remember like I had a sharp tongue and I was like, fuck you. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, I know what I'm doing. Leave me the fuck alone. And that's, that was my relationship with my mother in my early twenties. Um, I was also a binge drinker. Um, there was no point in a buzz for me. Like I, I, when I'm at a bar, like the first five minutes I've already gone through like six vodka tonics. Like that's just my warm up, And I go straight to like blackout. Um, I'm a fun time up until like, you know, it's, it's to like, I'm going to say like 11 and then I quickly start to decline. Um, so those are a lot of the, those are the, the ways that I, that, that I drink. And, um, in 2011 and 2008 wall street tanked and I had already met Rob and, um, we had to sell our house and all of this stuff. And so we moved to Austin and, um, and so now Rob was already sober for about three years at the time. And, um, I'm not, I had not, I was still, uh, drinking and I really still lived my life, but you know, through a broken compass, you know, like a moral compass, I was still, you know, doing things that were not ethical, um, in a relationship. And, um, I remember that I was engaged in this emotional relationship with, uh, this other gentleman. And, um, and when it ended, um, and this was a secret, right. That I'm like harboring. Um, I couldn't talk to anybody about it. And, um, when it ended, um, you know, I turned back to the solution that I have always known and that was alcohol. And I just remember pouring so much alcohol into me. I was so depressed and, um, because I wanted to like change the outcome. And the more I pressed my will on it, the worse it got. And, um, to the point where, I went out one night with my, one of my girlfriends over at Z Tejas over here. And I must have had about nine of those hydrogen-infused uh, margaritas or whatever they have. I couldn't see straight. Um, she said that she dropped me off uh, at the building that we used to live downtown. And, um, and I never made it into the building. Um, I passed out on the street. And Rob had gone out to walk the dogs and found me outside. And, um, and, I, and I always told myself, like you know, that I was not, that only alcoholics wake up on the street, right? I had the sliding definition of what an alcoholic was. And, um, and I remember waking up that morning and I was like, I'm still not an alcoholic. I just had a bad night. Right. You know? And, um, but that's like the way I justify and rationalize things. Cause, um, I just, I, 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 coming into this, this was Rob's program. Like he was sober. He was the alcoholic. He was the addict. AA was his thing. It was not my thing. He needed it. I didn't, you know, and, um, I was in a lot of delusion about, about my alcoholism. Um, so he had the talk with me that morning, you know, he sat me on the edge of the, of the edge of the bed. Um, uh, and it was frightening because I remember I woke up facing the wall and I didn't know where I was for like a hot second. And I was like, Oh fuck. 
what did I do? I'm in so much trouble. And then I flipped over and I realized that I was home and I was like, oh, phew. But then Rob walked in. He's like, dude. And I'm like, oh, here it comes. You know, and I remember when I gave him the ultimatum to like clean his act up. <clears throat> and, um, and, you know, and he had that same conversation with me. So I, I understood where it was coming from. You know, and he was like, you either got to like clean up or we got to break up. You know, I didn't get sober to live like this. And, um, and so in my self-will and still running the show, I was like, you know, I just wanted everything to stop. I wanted the pain to stop. So I was like, all right, you know, I'll, I'll," he didn't tell me to go to AA. He said, you know, if you want to come to meetings, you're more than welcome to join us. And so again, I just want that to quiet down. So I was like, all right, you know what? I'll go to meetings. I'll, I'll go to a couple of meetings. I'll check it out. I'll see what it's about. Um, see if I like it or, or whatever. But, um, but I was also in, in enough pain that I was a, like 0.1% willingness, right? I was like, all right, uh, if I have to do this, I will. And in February of 2013, you know, I walked through the doors of the pink house, um, here at Bolden and, um, you know, and here I'm asked to uh, take step one, right, uh, where we admitted we're powerless over alcohol and my life had become unmanageable. And I think one of my, in hindsight, I can say this, but one of my biggest mistakes was I really missed the mark on step one. Um, I honestly thought that my life was unmanageable because I drank, only because I drank. And then if I just stopped drinking, that my life could be manageable, that I could manage my own life, you know? And um, again, in hindsight, my experience has shown that drunk or sober, I still fuck shit up. Like I'm still unmanageable, right? And that's why I need the steps in, in this program to like help me. Um, I really like it in, the, in how it works in the ABCs where it says we were alcoholic <clears throat> and our lives were unmanageable because that really made, it was just, I had a different understanding around that. Um, so again, right. I'm just thinking like, as long as I don't drink, I'll be fine. So I come into AA and, um, I remember sitting in, in, in the, in, in the room and I was going to do this on my terms. I was like, I, I will agree to meetings and I will agree, agree to fellowship because that's fun. Why not? Right. And, um, but that was it. Like, I didn't want to do the steps. I didn't want to sponsor initially. I didn't, don't ask me to read. People would ask me to read and I was like, no, I'm not qualified. Right. And, um, or I remember like we'd go around the room and we, everyone would introduce themselves like, oh, I'm Bob. I'm an alcoholic. You know, I'm Fran. I'm an alcoholic. And I'd be like, I'm Roosevelt. And I just, I didn't want to, those words to come out because I really, with the way I grew up, you know, it was a stigma to be an alcoholic. And so, um, I really wanted to control my recovery. Um, and I also compared myself a lot to others in the room, you know, um, prior to Austin, you know, I used to live in, in Connecticut and, um, and I worked in Manhattan and it was very, it was very, for me at that time where I was, it was a very glamorous lifestyle. You know, it was very sex in the city. I, you know, I had cocktails at, in, in lounges and VIP clubs and, and, and first class and all of this stuff that on the outside looks awesome, right? Um, and I looked really, really, really fucking pretty when I walked out of the apartment at nine o'clock or 10 o'clock. But come 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, one o'clock, four o'clock in the morning in New York, 
it's a mess, right? I'm, I'm clinging to the walls of the, of the subway just so I can make it out. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, just hooking up with random people just so I could have a place to crash. And if I couldn't find a place to crash, I'd sleep in Grand Central. And, that, and I still didn't think I had a problem. Um, there was a store that would open up at like 6 o'clock um, in Grand Central. And I remember I'd be there at least four or five times a month buying a change of clothes so I could go to work so that my boss wouldn't know that I was a dirty stay out, right? And I was just, uh, but that was my routine. Um, so I, I come in and, um, and I'm doing the, I'm, I'm coming to meetings and I'm doing the fellowship and, um, and, and that's, that was enough to keep the, al- the, the allergy, the body in remission, right? Because I'm not take, I'm not taking a drink. But it did nothing for me in the sense that I wasn't doing the work to work on my spiritual malady at all, right? I'm still spiritually bankrupt. I'm still sick. And um, I'm still doing things that I'm not really proud of, right, in sobriety. And I feel horrible about that. And um, I would always hear, don't quit before the miracle happens. Don't quit before the miracle happens. And um, and I'm really glad that I stuck in there Um because something did happen within those 30 days, you know, um, eventually, you know, I, I love it when they break down step two into, I came, I came to, I came to believe that our power greater than myself could restore my sanity because that's exactly what happened to me. You know, like I came, I showed up, right. But by sticking around, I came to, I got woken AA. And I remember the day that I stopped comparing and I tried to identify and I just listened enough for enough openness or and willingness to like you know to be curious and um and I got a sponsor and I started working the steps and I still wanted to control my recovery in the sense that I was like all right I'm good with step one I'm good with step four step eight done I wanted nothing to do with God I'm still like you know at that point I was still like God didn't have my back ever so why should I turn to God now um so that really describes a state of condition where I'm basically dry, right? I don't have a spiritual solution in my life and I'm just not drinking, right? And it's like, I can't live with alcohol and I can't live without it. And um, what I experienced in sobriety was another, like a sober bottom, right? And this, um, that sometimes we speak of, you hear of. And um, I had a second surrender, and um, there's a speaker that I really, really like. His name is Bob Darrell. I think he's out of Nevada. And I listen to him a lot. And, um, and I'm going to use his words because mine don't do it justice because when I heard him say it, like literally, um, it, it made all the difference to me. But he said, <clears throat> um, I come, you know, the second surrender, uh, he says, you know, I come to AA surrendered by the bottle and then I feel better and my ego comes back. And then I go at life, Right. And I become surrendered by life itself, surrendered by my absolute inability to wrest happiness and satisfaction out of this world through my own management. It is this failure of my inability to fix sick self with self and make my life better that I come for a need and a desire for new management. And that was the realization for me that my life was unmanageable, drunk or sober. I need new management, right? Un- under my self-governance, self-reliance, I'm doing a horrible job. And enough 
willingness at that point, I got like, God's constantly doing for me what I can't do for myself, man. Like I got enough willingness to be like, you know what? I don't know what God is or I, 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 I only know what I used to know about God and I want to have a new experience. And, um, and I became open-minded about God. And at first it was, you know, a group of drunks and it was the, and it was AA and then it was the spirit of the universe. And now, you know, I choose to call my higher power God, but it's been a process over years of me getting to this place. Uh, but I had to start somewhere. And, and, and that's the day that it started. Um, when I got that, uh, basically second surrender. Um, and, but there's still a part of me that wants to control my recovery and, you know, all right, I'll incorporate the steps that involve God and I will try to build this relationship. Right. But don't ask me to be of service. Right. I'm still in this for me. Right. I want relief. I want what's in it for me. I don't want to give back. Right. I, I, that wasn't, that's just not how I used to be. Um, and so it was 18 months into my, into my sobriety here when um, we had to move. And we had to move to Minneapolis. And I don't know if anybody's been to Minnesota, but we moved to Minnesota in November. And within a week of moving there, it dropped to minus 40 degrees. And that is really cold, really cold. So needless to say, we didn't make a lot of friends those first few months that we lived there. You know, it was really lonely. It was really depressing. It was always gray. It was always cold. And, um, and I did know enough about the basics that I knew I had to get back to meetings and, and, and that sort of stuff. So, so that's what I did. Um, but I was the new guy at the meeting again, right? It didn't matter how, that I had 18 months. I'm new in the rooms. I have to get to know people all over again. I have to build a whole new fellowship, you know? Um, and those aren't, that's not always easy, you know, um, being the new guy. And, uh, and so this time <clears throat> I got a new sponsor again and, um, and he's like, bro, I can take you through the steps. He's like, we could do this, you know? He's like, but you're missing a key part of this program. You're, mi- you're not being of service. Like, how are you giving back? Where are your service commitments? What are you doing? And he's like, and that, and he tasked me with that. You know, he challenged me to like, start being of service. And so the one thing I, I have learned along the way is to take suggestion. Like, cause, cause I know it works. Like every time my sponsor has never like misguided me. And so I trust my sponsor when he says be of service, I jumped into it and I jumped in with both feet. And, um, oftentimes you'll hear, you will hear me light up when I speak about Minnesota because, um, because of how I got involved in AA, like I think early recovery for me here in, um, in Austin was early recovery. I still hadn't really, um, I was still trying to control it and I really hadn't come out of like um, I hadn't grown my AA legs yet, but in Minneapolis, like I was super involved. I spoke at conferences. I, I spoke at meetings. I, uh, hell I was, an, I'm an event manager. So I put on all these events for, um, uh, YPG for young people in, in recovery. Um, and we started this thing called sober fit club, Minneapolis, where every Sunday we'd get, we'd go to the lake and we'd play uh, volleyball and kickball and people would bring grills and music. And it was, and it grew from like, six people to like over 40, 50 people every Sunday. And it was this huge fellowship and it was 
so much fun and I, we got to meet so many people and I was just so involved. And, um, and we also started this thing called Sober Splash where we would take over this water park at night and, br- at night and bring in a DJ. And it was like the sober rave. And it was just so much fun. Like, honestly, I, we, di- I, we did a lot. We did a lot. So um, I do, and I worked with a lot of guys. Um, Hazelden was a treatment center up there and they had a um, adolescent center, a treatment center. And I worked a lot, a lot with the young kids there. Um, and that's been a pivotal part of my life too. I mean, sponsoring, um, guys and especially at a very young age, I mean, I've been able to like see them off to college. I've been able to see them get married, have kids, buy houses. I've watched them reconstruct their lives over the years. And it honestly, that's been like a huge blessing in my life. Um, but, uh, getting back to, uh, to, 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 to my journey here, um, In the 12 and 12, it says, um, it never occurred to me that I needed to change me to meet conditions, whatever they may be. And when I read that, it really reminded me that like, I can't control others, right? I have to, con- I have to change me. And, um, and I started working on that. Um, you know, and I also was very aware of when, like when I'm, crushed by a a self-imposed crisis when i'm when i'm when roosevelt roosevelt's will is defying god's will you know because it it always feels like a pit in my stomach i know when i'm like not doing god's will and so when i get to those places i always have to ask myself you know like are you looking for relief or are you willing to, to actually do something to take some action to change some long-term changes here. Um, and so I've learned to turn to God first, right? I go to God so I can see the truth. I always say, God, help me see the truth in this because I'm delusional. I can justify and rationalize shit like six, six ways to Sunday, you know? Um, and I go to, I go to, I go to myself for forgiveness and I go to my sponsor as an exercise in humility, Right, because I need to humble myself and I need to like put away my ego and pride and go to someone and say, "Hey, you know what? I don't know what I'm doing here. I need help. Can you help me?" And when I do those three spiritual acts, the result is always good, right? And so for me, uh, what's happened is I stop fighting. I stop fighting everything and everyone when I do that, right? I can like take this pause and I can reset and recalibrate and think about like, all right, what's the solution here? What is this? What does a working solution look like in my life? And God's will will always be, well, do the next right thing. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Like, don't do that, you know? And it's pretty easy, right? Um, it's, it's easier said than done. Um, but I think... Over time, if you, if, when I practice that enough, I've, I'm no longer the person that I used to be. And I've become somebody new, right? I've been reborn in, in AA. And, and I mean that in the sense that I've been reborn in my thinking and in my actions. And, uh, and the book you know, promises me that when the spiritual maladies overcome, we straighten out both mentally and physically. And I honestly feel that that's what's happened to me. Right. Um, as long as I continue to work on it, you know, there's that caveat at the end of the uh, promises. It works if you work it right. We have to work for it. Um, 
So that's been a, 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 a big, huge learning process in my recovery. Um, and the other thing, uh, there's two things that I wanted to share with you uh, that are gifts of the program is when I was in the process of making amends. And um, my mom was a single mom raising two kids. She worked three jobs. Half the time, we didn't have electricity. Like, you know, I remember when we were struggling because she'd make rice and eggs for dinner. And, um, and I have such a sharp tongue and I can cut someone to ribbons. And like the verbal abuse that I put my mother through upon other things, the mental abuse, um, like, you know, my mom didn't deserve me like shredding any dignity she had, stripping her of any dignity. You know, no one needs to be heard like, hey, fuck you, shut the fuck up. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Leave me the fuck alone. And I would slam my door or I would push her out of my way. And that's the way I treated my mother. And I got to <clears throat> heal that relationship through the amends process because I saw the damage I had done. And, and to be honest, like the beauty of, the, of my amends with my mom is that in doing that, I told myself, I will never pop off to my mother like that again. Like, I always respect my mother and I never, uh, am never vulgar with her. I haven't had a fight with my mother in over six years. And it's not, and I think it's because we really enjoy this mutual respect that we have for each other now. Like, honestly, like, she doesn't even push my buttons. And I don't push hers because I don't want to ruin it. Like, I love what we have today. And the other blessing is that, um, is my dad. Um, I grew up with so much hate in my heart for so many years. Like, I can't tell you how bitter I was. And I had stolen money from my dad when I was younger, and um, I I was not the nicest person. So I called to make amends uh, with him because he lived in Florida. And um, a third of my way into my amends, he stops me, and he's he's like, stop. He's like, I'm the one that owes you an apology. He's like... I had no idea what I was doing when I was 18 years old, when we had you. He's like, I'm not that person anymore. And he's like, and I had no idea that how I was treating you was going to affect you for the rest of your life. He's like, I'm so sorry. And I just want you to know that I love you. I was 43 years old. My dad told me he loved me. And this is like one of those things that I wanted my whole life. I just wanted my dad to be like, I love you. And I wanted to have that relationship. AA gave that to me. The amends gave that to me. Like, I have restored my relationship with my dad. It is still not the best, but it's way better than me having to be angry at life and blaming everything on my dad. I don't have that anymore. Um, and so those are some of, like, the blessings that I've received through doing the work, right? The very work that I was not going to do. You know, I was not going to do these things. Um, and, uh, I'm also reminded in the 10th step that, um, I'm am to continuing to, uh, let me put it right. Um, it reminds me that our next function is to continue to grow in effectiveness and understanding, and that is not going to be an overnight matter. And so I had a sponsor that used to tell me it wrote, it was eight miles into the forest. It's going to be eight miles out, right? Don't expect that everything's going to change all of a sudden because you're sober right? You still have to work at it and it's going to take time for both you and your family, right? And so I had this, it reset 
my, I don't want to say expectations, but like um, how I perceived my recovery. I knew that it was going to take time and I knew that I would still make mistakes, but I have tools, right? It says, you know, watch for selfishness, um, resentments and fear when they pop up, you know, ask God to remove them, um, share it with your sponsor, uh, make amends if necessary, and then turn my attention to helping others. Again, when I do those things, my I change. I change. And I'm not fighting everything and everyone. Um, and what the, the miracle in this is that I used to turn to drugs, alcohol, and, and sex for ease and comfort. That was my solution for a lot of things. And today, my ease and comfort comes from God in the steps. Like, it, that was never my default. But my first thought today is, all right, God, like, remove this fear or whatever I'm struggling with, right? And then, you know, I, I go to my sponsor and, and, and I work through it. I use the inventory process, uh, amends. Um, and if I'm not ready to let go of a defect, I pray for the, for the, for the willingness, you know? And God always shows me when it's time to work on something. It's funny because like there are certain things, certain things that I do that I hold, that I held on to for years. And, um, early on, I wasn't ready to address those, but in time, like God made it possible for me to let go of those things. Um, because it was time. Um, and so I, there's this other speaker that I really like. And he said that, um, being of service is the greatest form of gratitude for my recovery. And, you know, outside of service commitments, working with others, being of service that way has been a huge cornerstone in my life. Um, I've just, uh, and the irony in all of that is my sponsors think that I'm helping them when they're in fact really helping me. And I say that because I have grown so much, I personal growth through the experiences I've had with my sponsees, right? Because they've come to me with things that they've struggled with, that I've struggled with. And it made me think like, well, what, what should I be doing in this situation, right? Here I am like um, uh, offering suggestions, right? And, um, but am I practicing what I'm, what I'm, you know, what I'm preaching? And, um, you know, there was a time when I used to creep on Craigslist, if anybody remembers Craigslist. But, um, but I was, you know, I was, I'd be creeping on Craigslist. And I remember a response, he would come to me like, oh yeah, you know, I'm hooking up with this girl, or, you know. And I was like, I can't be telling him like, don't be cheating on your wife, don't be creeping on Craigslist. And for me, I couldn't say that in good faith, knowing that I was still doing those things, you know? So it really forced me to take a hard look at myself and be like, all right, what's got to change now, bro? And, um, and, 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 you know, and I took that to heart and I started to make those changes. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not a role model by any means and I'm not perfect. I accept my, my humanness. You know, but I know that this program uh, gives me examples of what good, like, uh, humanity can look like when I when I do the right thing. Um, so, you know, I, I've gone through a lot of change, um, both mentally, spiritually, physically, um, and it's all honestly I can't. I, I give all the gratitude and, and the credit to like God doing for me what I could never do for myself. 
right? That's really what it comes down to. Because of myself, I would have already been dead or in jail or have killed somebody else. Um, that was the path that I was on if I had continued to drink. And, um, and so it, it's just been a, a, a transformation for me. Um, I love who I am today. Um, I'm not uh, that kid who was like, uh, felt that he was so unlovable, you know, um, found love in the rooms of AA and in love through like helping others. Um, and I no longer feel unloved and I know that I'm enough, right? I know that I don't have to impress anybody anymore. I don't, I, I know all, like I've learned these things. I'm okay in my own skin now. Um, and, uh, so I just wanted to close, um, by, uh, reading a little something that means a lot to me. And it's in a vision for you. And it's at the bottom of page 152. That's where it starts. And it says, you will be bound to them with new and wonderful ties for you will escape disaster together and you will commence shoulder to shoulder your common journey. Then you will know what it means to give of yourself that others may survive and rediscover life. You will learn the full meaning of love thy neighbor as thyself. And so I just wanted to say thank you for uh, walking on this journey shoulder to shoulder and showing me how to uh, be a better human being. You know, um, I love AA. I love my recovery. And um, all of those things that I said I would never do in AA, I've done them all. And I do it enthusiastically. It's always an honor and a privilege for me. So um, just thank you. Thank you for, for letting me uh, be the speaker tonight.